world. Good morning, Grace Church. Do you see an extra large smile on my face this morning? My grandbaby's in the house. And oh, she's precious. So if you get a chance to come alongside Joey, who's like an incredible dad who makes great kids, and then my daughter, just uh, love well on them. They're only here for this weekend, then they're gone. So uh, praise God for the opportunity anyway. Well, good morning and welcome to Facets of Jesus. I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 today. Matthew chapter 16, as today we take another biblical view or look at a unique facet of this person called Jesus. And today we're going to see that Jesus is the Christ of God, the Christ of God. And it has been my prayer in preparation for this time that you would see him for who he truly is and that your heart would fall deeply, deeply in love with this one. So today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16 and uh, we're going to begin with this statement concerning the Christ that actually comes off the lips of the uh, Apostle Peter. So, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. And keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at other sections there as well. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he turned to his disciples and he asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the term Son of Man was Jesus' favorite term to call himself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, who had recently been beheaded. Others say Elijah, or others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus, as he was prone to do, he took a question and then he turned it on them. And he said to them, wait a minute, who do you say that I am? And here comes Simon Peter, the only place in scripture I can find where he didn't stick his foot in his mouth. No, I'm just kidding. But he had a, a foot-shaped mouth because his foot often landed there. So Simon Peter replied, you are what? You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Now notice Jesus' statement here. And Jesus answered him. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father in heaven is the one who revealed this to you. Well said, Simon. You said it correctly. So the application of this term, the Christ, being given to Jesus, Jesus embraced this title, this term, wholeheartedly. And then we have, and, and he, he said, yes, Peter, but it wasn't really Peter who figured it out. It was really the father who told Peter that this was true. And then in verse 18, we have an a, a unusual statement, and one that's often misinterpreted, so I thought I would include it as we begin our discussion of the Christ. Jesus goes on to say to Peter, and I tell you, you are what? Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the first reference in the New Testament to the church. And here, Peter, um, 
he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, some folks have taken that to mean that the church of Christ today has been built on the foundation of St. Peter. And there's a whole group of people who believe that St. Peter was the first of the popes, and, and so we have the succession or this line of the popes. So, so the question is, is that really what Jesus is saying? He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now, there's a little bit of a word play going on here. You are Peter. The word Peter in the original language is the word Petros. Petros. You are Petros, which is a stone or a rock or even a pebble. It tends to be a small stone. But then Jesus said this, but on this Petra, rock, I will build my church. So people believe that what he's doing is this. Peter... You're, you're a rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. But in fact, what Jesus is saying is this. Peter, well said. My father revealed this to you. I'm going to call you pebble. And on this rock, pointing to himself, and the statement that he is the Christ, I am going to build the church on me, is what he's saying. So think of it like this, if you would. So here's Peter. Here's Peter. Peter, well said. Your name shall be uh, Petros, this little rock. Now, I don't know if you know much about pebbles or little rocks, but they tend to be very unstable. Uh, they tend to be um, often an irritant. They often are easily moved. And I think that's a good description of Peter, don't you? Unstable, easily moved. Peter, you're pebble. You can call them pebbles, I guess. We can just call them pebbles. But what I want you to notice is right after this remarkable statement that, that uh, Jesus, uh, Peter gave of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A few verses down in chapter 16, Jesus said this in verse 21, from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he'll rise. And it says, Peter took him aside. And he began to rebuke Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, what? Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. You see, Peter is not the rock that the church is built on. Peter is an unstable pebble. One who would often say things that were, were poorly said or, or very inaccurate. And so again, we have another episode here in chapter 17, Matthew 17. If you have the, uh, the worship Bibles, it's page 822. It says this, that they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter, James, and John. And it says Jesus was now manifesting his glory in this transfiguration moment. In verse 3, chapter 17. And behold, there appeared to them also Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, get this. Jesus is being glorified. The light is shining through him. And here is Moses. And here is um, Elijah. And Peter starts talking. There are moments where talking is inappropriate. So notice, he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm Lord, Jesus, Lord, it is good that we be here. Idiot. Yes, it is. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Notice, verse 5. While he is yet rambling on, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, who, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, shut up right now. 
So this is Peter. Peter, you're a pebble. You're unstable. You're an irritant. And you're easily moved. I think he aptly named Peter. He never made him the rock upon which the church was established. He well named him. Now, now, please don't get me wrong. It's not that God did not go on to use Peter greatly. Over in Matthew chapter 16 again, back into this statement, verse 19, Matthew 16, 19, he says this, Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, uh, which you will, um, of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Sure. So he did give him a prominent position and a great opportunity. Then on the day of Pentecost, he stood up and th- preached the word of God. And 3,000 people came into the kingdom. Later on, he took the, the uh, gospel to the Gentiles. So Peter had a privileged position. But Peter's not the rock upon which the church is built. Peter's just a man. He's just human like you and I. He's not the Christ. He's not Jesus. He's not God. He's just a broken guy. I can guarantee you today, if Peter could stand right here, he wouldn't wear gold and white shimmery gowns with a tall miter hat. He would be here on his knees telling us how grateful he is to be in the presence of Christ. This is the truth. So, Peter, pebbles. This is Peter. But he says, on this rock, and the word rock is Petra. And there just happens to be a city a few miles to the east of Jerusalem called the city of Petra, the rock-red city, the rose-red city. And it's monoliths, entire buildings carved into the faces of rocks. Peter, this is you. An unstable, easily moved irritant. But I'm going to use you for my glory. But Peter, this is me. I am the foundation upon which the church is built. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus who? He is the Christ. In fact, that's what he was actually telling Peter. Well said, Peter, because upon this truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus Christ will build his church. He is the foundation of the church. He is the chief cornerstone of the church. It is founded on none other than Jesus Christ. Because he is the Christ. So, just getting into this a little bit, and considering these truths, this term, the Christ, the Christ, The Christ is a highly important term, a very, very important term. I just want to kind of say a few things in in kind of an introductory manner, uh, manner to kind of get us to where we need to go. First of all, the name Christ, it's used uh, over 500 times in the New Testament. Over 500 times. It is used in connection with the name Jesus Christ over 270 times in the New Testament. Like we were talking about Jesus being the Logos and how only five times or so, a handful of times in the Bible, is it capitalized that Jesus is that word? So that's one of the most infrequent uses, but the most frequent use to describe who Jesus Christ is, is the Christ. It's not his last name. It just isn't. My name is Bill Walker. Uh, my family gave me the name Bill for my grandfather. My middle name is my other grandfather. But our, our family name is my last name. Christ is not Jesus' family name. It is a title that has been given to him by none other than God the Father. 
So when we say Jesus, it might actually be more applicable and more true to say Jesus the Christ rather than Jesus Christ as though somehow that's his last name. It isn't. It is a title that has been given to him. And so um, that title, the Christ, is so beautiful because out of that title, we get the privilege of being named Christians, a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is a little Christ. It refers to one who has come to Christ and Christ alone has turned from their sin and their selves and embraced Jesus Christ with their life and follow him. That's a Christian. What a beautiful term that is. We get that because he's the Christ. Another wonderful term that we get out of that term Christ is, is this holiday that's upcoming. What's that holiday called? Christmas, Christ Mass. You see why our, our, our public is so uh, averse to calling it Christmas? Because it is the most prominent title given to none other than the Son of God himself. And so there's that natural aversion within our culture not to use that name. So, again, Jesus Christ used 271 times in the New Testament, uh, Little Christ, Christmas. Uh, the title Christ is Greek for the Hebrew title Messiah. So if you go back into the Older Testament, start looking up that term Messiah, you'll discover that it's used there multiple hundreds of times as well. So the Hebrew word is Messiah, the Greek equivalent to Messiah is Christ. So whether it's Christ or Messiah, they both mean the same thing. They both literally mean God's anointed. God's anointed. And so as we talk about the importance of the Christ, the first thing I want you to consider is this truth. That he, Jesus, is God's anointed king. That's what the Christ means. He is God's anointed king. Now, the word anointed has the idea of a specially chosen or a selected individual for a particular purpose in serving God. And you'll find that in the uh, Old Testament that God would anoint priests and sometimes prophets. But the term is most readily used for the anointing of kings. Thus, they became God's specially selected vessels for him to use. In fact, here's a statement from King David. Actually, he wasn't king at this point. This is David talking about King Saul. I want you to see how beautiful this term is. And so Saul, uh, David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's. What's the word? Yeah, the word in the Hebrew is literally Messiah. So he was actually saying that King, uh, King Saul was actually the Lord's um, Messiah to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's Messiah. So all throughout the Older Testament, there were lots of messiahs. They were anointed individuals, uniquely anointed individuals for God's purpose. And so too, Jesus is not a little um, a anointed, not a little M Messiah, not a little C Christ, but he is the Christ. And you'll also discover that this term, the idea of anointed uh, king, actually comes over into other languages as well. Uh, in the Latin, an anointed king or ruler over the Roman people was known as Caesar, chosen by the gods to rule the people. Another word comes to us in German. It's Kaiser. 
it also has the same idea to be God's anointed king or ruler over the people. Uh, you move over into yet another language, and you'll discover that in Russian, the word is czar. It is the same idea of God's anointed king. And even in Persian, remember back in the days in Iran where we had the Shah of Iran? The word Shah also has the idea of God's anointed king. So each of them ruled under what they believed to be the divine hand of God. But they're little. They're insignificant in history. They played a minor role on a minor stage for a little bit of time. Because there is a greater Caesar than Caesar. There is a greater Kaiser than Kaiser. There is a greater Tsar than the Tsars. There is a greater Shah than the Shahs. And that one is Jesus Christ. He is, if you will, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And hence, it says this to Timothy, blessed is the only sovereign the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. There was a man, name of Handel, wrote a little piece about two and a half hours long called Handel's Messiah. It goes something like this concerning Jesus. two hours to play the whole thing out but there is one who is above all he is the king of all kings he is the lord of all lords his name is jesus god's christ god's anointed king over all and so as we start to kind of chase this idea a little bit let me ask you if you were caesar one of the caesars and in your realm, there was a group of people who believed that there was somebody actually more important than you, a kingdom that actually superseded your realm. How would you feel about that? They didn't like it at all. In fact, we know uh, from the first century that the Caesars, when it came to this thing called Christians, were irate that they would not consider Caesar God and that the kingdom of Rome was the greatest kingdom on earth. And the Christians, they were, they were good citizens, they would do what they must, they were hard workers, all of that. But it, it ate at them. So they actually created a way to test the allegiance of Christians. And what, what it was, was this. In each town, it was incumbent once a year for all the citizens to walk by a statue of Caesar of which there was a low flame burning, you were to take a pinch of, of incense and you were to place it onto the fire, let it go poof, and when you do that, you must say, Caesar is Lord. Well, if you're a believer in that first century and you didn't believe that he was the Lord, but merely a minor player in overall arc, overarching plan of God, you would have a problem with that. At least I would hope you would have a problem with that. 
And so we have a story of a man by the name of Polycarp who had a real issue with this. And so Polycarp has the distinction of having been the disciple of the Apostle John. So Polycarp grew up under John's writing and his teaching, and ultimately John died and Polycarp went on. In A.D. 150, Polycarp was challenged by the Roman government to offer incense to Rome. You must say Caesar is Lord. He turned to the proconsul and he said, I will not. To which the proconsul told Polycarp these words. If you do not, we will feed you to wild beasts. To which the aged believer, now 86 years old, a longtime follower of Jesus, his true Lord, said to them, call for them then. We Christians are fixed in our minds not to change from good to evil. But for me in this moment, it will be good not to be changed, to be changed from evil to good. Do you see what he's saying? Bring on the dogs. I want to die. I can't wait to be with Jesus. This was the heartbeat of the early church. This is the importance Jesus played, even in the face of overwhelming might and power. And friends, this is what ultimately broke the back of Rome. Rome only had power over people that they could torture with the fear of death. But with Christians, they welcomed death which all of a sudden took away from Rome its only real tool to get people to be in subjection to them. And Christians just smiled and said, throw me into the arena. I'm good. And they're like, what do we do with these people? Ultimately, it was so winsome that, that, that uh, Christianity overtook the Roman world. So friends, this is this one. And this is how they lived with the words of the Apostle Paul. Our citizenship's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the Christ of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. That's the one I serve. That was the first century, second century, early believers. Now, when we get into our day and age, how do we show our allegiance to Jesus? You see, it's a lot more nuanced today. How do we actually show that Christ is our king more than a man who lives in a White House right about there? How do we show that his kingdom is greater than the political boundaries of our nation? I know that recently the NFL has had these guys who are kind of going through this thing of bending the knee when the anthem is played, and it's been turned into a patriotic issue. You know, if you really bend the knee, then you're not a patriotic person, and to some degree, if you're not a, a good Christian, then, then uh, if you're a good Christian, you won't bend the knee. We have taken a lot of our Americanisms, and we've laid them over what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and can I just say, you, you, you know my heart here. Uh, that's an invalid statement because being a follower of Jesus Christ stands over and above our nation. Being a follower of Jesus Christ stands over and above even who's in the White House. Now, we believe from Romans 13 that the man in the White House was ultimately put there by God. We believe that we are to be in subjection to those authorities. We believe that we are to pay our taxes, and Paul tells Timothy that we're to pray for him. So we should be by far the best citizens. But our allegiance to Jesus Christ has nothing to do with a political party. 
our allegiance to Jesus Christ has nothing to do with, with, with uh, whether somebody stands or sits during the anthem. It really doesn't have anything to do with any of that. But in many areas of our nation, we have made it such. And the problem is this. We have a term that we use that we actually use that's not valid. And that is saying that we are a Christian nation. Now, let me, I'm not going to explain it the way you're thinking. But the word Christian, remember we defined it just a few moments ago. A Christian is someone who is pleased to take on that title, who has repented of their sins, turned from their self, and embraced Jesus Christ with their life, and they're now following him. That's what a Christian is. It is a noun that describes, it's a title given to an individual who follows Christ. But we've taken the word Christian and made it an adjective. So now we have a Christian nation, but you can't use the word that way. Because there's no such thing as a Christian nation. You can't use the word Christian as a describer. It's a person, not an entity. You know, we have things called Christian music. We have things called uh, uh, Christian books. We even have a Christian school. But all of those terms are an invalid use of the word Christian. But what happens when you overlay this general sense of Christendom on a nation is now we, we make being a good citizen of this nation what it means to be a Christian. But that's not true. A Christian is somebody who is over and above this nation, who rules under Christ and, and is a part of a kingdom that extends beyond our shores. You know, um, I, I question myself before the Lord how far down this path I would go. <laughs> Because I do want you to, uh, to hear what else is, is before us today. And I don't want you to miss any of it because it's rich about who he is. But can, can I just say this? Uh, today we have this term uh, in our circles uh, called values voters. And that, that's fine. That sounds good. But the values that we try to place on our nation are really values that we as Christians in Christ with the Holy Spirit have a hard time living. So how can we then impress upon an unrepentant heart the same values that we're told that we should follow Christ with? So what we have done in, in going down this pathway, and, and forgive me for the, the connection, but it, it works, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were adding burdens to burdens to burdens, and they were driving people away from God. And so today, there's this evangelical voting block where we're all about values votings, and we're forcing principles that are hard enough for us in Christ to follow upon unregenerate peoples, and they hate us for it. The very people we're called to reach in grace and love are running the other way and angry with us because we're putting morals on them that the unrepentant heart can never take, and we're doing it in Jesus' name. So, the reason for the church and the reason for being a follower of Christ and the reason that we're in this world at this point as his, his Christians is to exalt the Lord, to share the gospel. And the day is coming where we get to embrace him face to face. All the rest is just overlay. All the rest is just extra. But the extra is actually making our mission that much harder. 
I, I just want to give you a reference point to help you think these things through because they're deep thoughts, they're hard thoughts. I know that in our day and age, these things are, are strange that I'm talking about because they're, they're rife everywhere. Let me give you a, a text to consider. It's a, it's a small book, excellent. I have both the, uh, uh, the book as well as the tablet version. It's simply this, the gospel and the citizen. The Gospel and the Citizen. If you want to write something down, write that down. The Gospel and the Citizen, Essays on the Church and State Relations, written by a Grace Brethren pastor. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. It will really challenge how you think about the Christian in the state. Is it true that we are about God and country, or has country become God? Those are the challenges that we are left with today. Because, friends, there is only one potentate. There is only one His name is Jesus, and nothing has changed from the first century till now. Our citizenship is in heaven, from where we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still telling us to seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the United States of America is not his kingdom, because my kingdom is not of this world. Let these things resonate in your hearts. Don't just immediately put up a wall and say, this is ridiculous. No, ask the Holy Spirit to convince you from Scripture not just to recoil to my words. Because again, there's only one who is the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And this is the one we serve. Not a man in the White House, not our local politicians, not our country, but we serve Christ who is the King and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. The Christ is an important term in the scripture. Jesus is God's anointed king. But secondly, I want you to understand that the Christ, Jesus, is God's sovereign ruler. He is God's sovereign ruler. You see, Jesus Christ is not just the one who possesses and holds complete authority and power as God's anointed king. But... He is God's sovereign ruler who exercises complete authority and power in the outworking of God's plan in this world. That's this one, Jesus. He is sovereign who oversees all the will and the plan of God that is to play out in this world. Let me just give you a hint of just what he does. Way, 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 way back into the Bible, early chapters of Genesis, we have the fall of mankind into sin. And immediately after sin is entered into the human race, God gave his first promise that there is a coming one who would deliver us. And it's here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, way back. But I, says the Lord, I will put enmity between you, the snake and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, but you um, you shall bruise his heel. This is kind of cryptic. But actually, it's what's called the Proto-Evangelum, which is the first giving of the promise of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one coming. There is one coming from the very fall of humanity all the way until he actually came. There's one coming. There's one coming. And throughout the Older Testament, we have promise upon promise upon promise upon promise upon promise. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, the promise was that this one would come through the line of Shem. In Genesis chapter 12, in verse 7, we're told that the promised one would come through the line or the seed of Abraham, that people group. Then within that people group, it's narrowed down even more more in Genesis 17, 19, that he will be the seed of Isaac. 
And then it's narrowed down even more into not just the seed of Isaac, but actually he will come through the tribal group called Judah. And as you continue to make your way through the scriptures, it becomes more and more defined until 2 Samuel 7.12. It says that he will come from the literal family of King David. So you see God saying, there's one coming, there's one coming. Let me show you how he's coming, where he's coming through, and all this. And what you have in the Older Testament are 324 promises of the coming Messiah. Now the interesting thing about all these promises, God makes all these promises. But the fulfillment of them, not one of them, is dependent on us. Not one of them. God is the one who gave all the promises, and ultimately God is the one who will fulfill all of the promise commitments that go along with every single one of them. You see, what this does is that it emphasizes God's sovereign rule over his world. God had a plan, and there's nothing man can do that will ultimately take that plan off its heels. Because Jesus Christ is not only the promised one, but the fulfiller of all the promises that he himself orchestrates. Paul tells us this about Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. That is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. I don't know about you, but I'm glad it doesn't depend on me. In fact, throughout the scripture, every time a man or a, or a person was somehow implicated in somehow filling an obligation, we fail every single time. And if God didn't step in and pick it up and run with it, it never would have happened. So the beautiful thing is, is that God is sovereign and for his good glory, he takes up the cause in his grace for our sake. Because again, left to ourselves, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside, by the way, he's talking about us. Together we have become worthless. No one does good. How many? Not even one. So do you see the importance of this truth? On the one hand, God makes all the promises. And then on the other hand, God fulfills all the commitments. And all of that is by the grace of God. You see, the beauty of this is it emphasizes God's grace. On the other side, it emphasizes our inability. On one side, it emphasizes God's love and desire. On the other side, it emphasizes our depravity. And until we understand that God is God and we are not, that he is in control and we aren't. We'll never really appreciate who he is and what he's done and how we are to worship him. Let me show you just a little video clip. It comes from something called the Bible Project. Uh, it's fabulous, and it does a good job of overviewing just how important this whole thing plays out in the wisdom and in the plan of God. Watch this. It's good. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much, and that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. 
they rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great, so what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed 
to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Crazy. Just crazy. So God makes all these promises trying to get his goodness into the lives of, God's pe- in the lives of people to bring back the restoration of the earth. And this is the part we play. We don't. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus does. Oh, wait a minute. Not really Jesus. It's God. Well, yeah, it's Jesus. And God the Father makes the promises. Jesus comes along and fulfills them. So together they cinch the deal. Amazing. It's called grace. There's no other way. It's all by God's grace. It's all by God's goodness. It's all been done by God. And so the call to us is to come to him to receive this grace found in Jesus, the Christ of God alone. That brings us to the fourth or the third area. Not only is Jesus God's sovereign ruler, but lastly, Jesus the Christ is God's means of grace. He alone is that one who dispenses grace. That's why the Bible says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, now again, grace is God giving to us or doing for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. We can't save ourselves, can we? There's only one way that we can be saved, and that is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. He did it. We don't do anything. He did it. In fact, our part in all of this, Jesus said it so clearly. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. Our point is to repent. Our point is to believe. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And yet, there is only a scary few who do this. Only a very few who are willing to come to this place and embrace Christ, and receive this gift of grace. And the reason so few come is because it is so costly. What? I thought you said it was a gift. Yeah, it is. But it's a gift that will cost you your life. This is the part we miss today in the gospel presentation. God's already done it all. It's all done in Christ. But repentance says, I turn from myself, from my sin. I let go of this. I turn and I embrace him with my life. And I now become his follower. He is Jesus the Christ, the Lord of God. This is what it means to be rightly related to God through the person of Jesus Christ who did it all. We're not doing anything but simply giving back to him that which he rightly rightfully owns, which is us. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said this, the only man or woman who has the right to say that he or she was justified by grace alone 
is the one who has left all to follow Christ. Does that make sense? That's scary, isn't it? This is why so few are truly saved. Because somebody prayed a prayer and somebody got them wet and they think they're good to go. No, you don't understand. It's not about the outward, it's about your heart. And the new heart brings forth new life and a love for Christ. Without which no one will see him. It is not getting wet on the outside and it's not saying a few words out of our mouth. It is him who saves us. And when he steps into a life, there's transformation. There's a new life. Think of it like this. This is a wedding ring. On July 23rd, 1988, this summer's our 30th wedding anniversary. Hallelujah. On July the 23rd, my wife bought me a ring. Cost me nothing. Stood in front of a whole bunch of people and said, I love you. I want to be connected to you the rest of my life. So she put this ring on my finger. And from that day forward, my life has never been the same. But it was free. Yeah, it was free, but it cost me my life. I now belong to my wife. It's, it's like when I got down on my knees on, on July the 6th, 1985. I got down on my knees before Jesus Christ, and, and I cried out to him that I was destroying myself and that I needed somebody to step into my life and rescue me from myself. And that night, he stepped into my life, and my life has never been the same since. And all I can say to that is praise God, because I'm self-destructive by nature. He, I would kill myself long ago and go to hell, but he saved me, put me on the path to heaven, and I get to honor and glorify him every day. So this is what he does. He gives grace, but that grace will cost you your life. Again, quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the only man who has the right to say he has been justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. But not only can we not save ourselves, the grace he gives us is not just to save us, but the grace he gives us is also to sanctify us. Because in him, Jesus, I'm sorry, because in him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God, the righteousness, and the sanctification. The sanctification. There is no way for us to make our lives better. There is no way for us to make ourselves holy. There is no way to make ourselves look like Jesus. The only one who can do that is God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way. And Jesus tells us how that works. He said this, abide in me. And I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. For apart from me, you can do how much? Absolutely nothing. You can't save yourself and you can't sanctify yourself. It's all a gift of God's grace and it comes through repentance and faith. That's it. That's it. That's how it works. That's how it works. It's all a gift of God's grace. Our part in this is to confess our sin and to embrace him. To confess our sin, to embrace him on a daily level. That's how we get sanctified. If you will, Jesus says, come to me. That's repentance, turning from your sin and failure. Come to me, follow, to, follow me, listen to me, and obey me. But I just failed. I know. Come back to me. Follow me. Listen to me. Obey me. But I failed. I know. Come to me. Do you see how it works? Repentance and faith. Repentance and repeat. Repent and repeat. Repent and repeat. And this is our ongoing opportunity to see the Christ life brought into our life. Can I just say, do you see now why you can never, 
you can never say that the church is built on Peter. (laughs) Because this is God's king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one who is sovereignly working all things for the purpose of God, and he is the only one in which grace is given. He is the Christ. And apart from him, there is no hope. I hope you see his beauty today. I'm going to uh, get us ready for the Lord's table, and we will partake of that uh, briefly together. Uh, I have a special audio clip that's going to play while it's being handed out. I would really appreciate it if you would just kind of listen, because it's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever seen to exalt the person of Jesus Christ. So while these elements are being handed out, thank you gentlemen for coming. While these elements are being handed out, please take some time to consider what this song has to say. was lost in darkest night yet thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would hurry
writing to, to the saints in Corinth. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 